0: Hi, it's Chris Flanagan. Welcome to the Paediatric Emergencies podcast. So we're back dealing with the Paediatric Critical Care Perils today, and I've got part three here for you today. Before I get into the Paediatric Critical Care Perils, I want to let you know about a new video that I posted up on the website, uh, pediatricemergencies.com. So this is a comparison of six different video laryngoscopes in both uh, adults and children. Um, it's released only as a video and not as a podcast because it's, it's mostly something to watch and there's not an awful lot of talking to do with it. So if you're anyway interested in uh, intubation, video laryngoscopy, simulation, um, the video might be of interest to you. Right, so we'll get on with the paediatric critical care perils. So starting with peril number 21. Uh, peril number 21 is the best endotracheal tube, is the one that's in the trachea. And what this pearl really means is don't change a perfectly well-placed oral endotracheal tube to nasal in an unstable child. And certainly in some departments um, nasal tubes are routinely used. Um, They're generally more comfortable for the children and there's less risk of unplanned extubation. So in general the children are intubated orally and then the tube is changed over from oral to nasal. But prior to doing that, you have to weigh up the risks and benefits of the intervention and the benefits of doing so have to weigh out any risks involved with the procedure. And the one patient where that isn't true is the potentially unstable child. Um, So it's your septic patient, your patient who needs properly resuscitated. That's the child who you shouldn't immediately be changing an oral tube to a nasal tube. And there's a number of reasons for that. Um, First and foremost, you're putting the child through an unnecessary intervention which has a high risk of things going wrong during it. You've got a tube in, the child's ventilating well. Um, The only reason to change it, like I said, is patient comfort and security. However, the child's unstable, you're going to be keeping them pretty flat, the tube's going to be well secured, it's not likely to fall out at the moment the tube can be changed at a later stage when the child is much more stable. So in that acute phase, the risks of changing the tube um, aren't outweighed by any benefits. And it's the last thing that child needs. They're, they may be sick from a point of view of sepsis. Do you really need to add an airway and breathing problem to a C problem when you've already got it sorted out? Um, The other thing is while you're busy changing that tube, you're neglecting the circulation. There's lots of other things you could be doing to optimise that child, but you're doing an unnecessary intervention with the airway. And there's certain places, um, Northern Ireland certainly one of them, where almost a standard occur is a nasal tube in a critically ill child. Uh, And traditionally um, it was encouraged that people in district general hospitals would try and put nasal tubes into these sick children and when they were brought to the intensive care unit it was almost a, a pat on the back you got um, you brought this really sick kid but still you've got a nasal tube in well done um, that's really changing now and certainly if i'm going out to retrieve a child who's in septic shock or who's post arrest and i see they've got a nasal tube in i'm almost looking to say actually i'm a little bit worried about your insight that you thought this was the best thing to do in that potentially unstable child was to put a nasal tube in, put them through an unnecessary intervention when actually there's lots of other things that still need to be sorted out as well. Okay, to sum it up then, so the best endotracheal tube is the one in the trachea. Please don't put unstable children through unnecessary interventions by changing a perfectly good oral endotracheal tube for a nasal one just because you think it needs to be done. Okay uh, moving on to pearl number 22. So pearl number 22 is remember the external jugular vein in difficult access and don't forget about scalp veins and umbilical veins in neonates. Um, so if you listen a regular listen to the podcast you know what my view on access is on um, hemodynamically unstable children. It's you, you spend maybe about a minute or so at most um, trying to get uh, peripheral venous access and if it's any way difficult put an interosseous line in, get on with resuscitating the child and you can sort the intravenous axis out at a later stage. So at most time spending about a minute or so um, looking for a vein and you want to make your attempts at venous access as optimal as possible and the external jugular vein is probably your best bet in most children. Um, it's easy to cannulate and like I say, people are generally poking about at the peripheries in a shut down child where there's no veins whereas if you, somebody puts a, a, an arm under the shoulders extends the neck there's normally a whopper of a vein that you can put a cannula into without much difficulty but the problem is people don't think about it so external jugular veins um you want the the bed slightly head down it's going to help fill the vein and prevent any air embolus. Um, the quickest thing is just to get somebody to put a, an arm under the patient's shoulders and That will extend the neck, head over towards the opposite side You want to then put a finger at the bottom of the vein to help to extend it Have somebody tense the skin on either side to uh, fix the vein And then the best way to actually, in small children, is to actually just transfix the vein um, If you try to cannulate it di- directly, it's very difficult to cannulate just because of the angle um you almost always um, end up going through it so your my preferred approach is almost to intentionally go through it and catch it on the way back in out. Um, other options you have are scalp veins um, again if you're somebody who deals mostly with adults you won't think about scalp veins but uh, in neonates and small infants they're often the best veins they tend not to be the most secure so if you get a cannula in the scalp it's Likely to maybe last you a day or so before it falls out. Um, but that's going to be enough to get your child resuscitated, uh, necessary blood samples taken. Um, and then, actually, as they warm up and their perfusion comes back, you'll probably be able to get a cannula in somewhere else. So don't forget about the scalp. If I've got a sick neonate um, who's uh, shut down coming in, um, they're the two places I'm looking for. It's the, the scalp. Or the external jugular vein are, are the two best. Um, I do mention umbilical veins and um, something to think about and um, they're generally for me not a resuscitative line um, you can probably do it in the first week of life but as time goes on it's it's harder and harder to um, get into the umbilicus and um, so if your child needs immediate access um, enterosias is probably better but if you're looking for more secure access um, remember the umbilical vein. You can put a normal central line or a feeding catheter into it, and use that for your access. You don't need a dedicated um, umbilical venous line to go in. Um, like I said, it's a bit slower. Um, it's a bit more awkward to do. Um, so my preferred approach would definitely be the, the external jugular vein um, for access. Okay, so moving on to pearl number twenty three. And um, pearl number twenty three is avoid the three itches in traumatic brain injury. So, the three H's are hypoxia, hypercapnia, and hypotension. Um, and that just goes without saying. Um, hypoxia and hypercapnia um, are potent stimulus to bring extra blood to the brain. And with that extra blood, um, brings increased pressure in a child who's already got raised into cranial pressure. Um, so, they're really, really important to avoid the, the things that may cause secondary brain injury. And hypotension should be aggressively treated, um, actually in these situations of raised intracranial pressure and traumatic brain injury. You want actually super normal, uh, blood pressure to try and push extra blood into the brain to maintain your cerebral perfusion pressure um, so hypotension you need to get on top of fairly quickly. And Like I say your, your targets are going to be slightly higher than normal. Um, if you want to find out more about that, um, there is a separate episode on uh, raised intracranial pressure, um, which you can find in the podcast or on the website, um, pediatricemergencies.com. So in avoid the three itches in traumatic brain injury, hypoxia, hypercapnia and hypotension. Okay, pearl number 24. Um, so pearl number 24 is use lactate as a marker for occult sepsis. So the traditional teaching was that uh, lactate was the product of anaerobic metabolism and uh, the thinking was that you weren't delivering enough oxygen to the tissues so they switched from aerobic to anaerobic metabolism and you produce lactate. Um, We now know that the relationship between uh, why lactate is raised in septus is a little bit more complicated than that. Um, But in general, an elevated lactate is a bad thing and it tells you something's going wrong. With your patient and you need to investigate it um, and treat your patient. You need to have a reason as to why the lactate's up. So with this in mind you can use lactate as a screening test um, telling you that there's something going wrong with your patient that you need to treat or investigate further and you know the, the children who present with pyrexia, slightly impaired perfusion, um, it's a great test to do in these children to help you work out just how sick they are. Um, I certainly can remember children who walked into the emergency department um, and then within maybe about half an hour, an hour or so develop a, a rash of meningococcal septicemia um, you do their initial lactate as you bring them into the resuscitation area and it's eight or ten. Um, had that child have had a lactate done an hour ago, it probably was six or seven and that would have flagged that child up as very sick that would have been somebody you'd want to jump on to start resuscitation on so maybe before they showed other signs of um, impaired perfusion hypotension so like i say lactate's a great marker um, of occult sepsis before the patient decompensates and allows you to bring important interventions to them at an earlier stage okay so moving on to pearl number 25 and uh, pearl number 25 is don't forget ph steroids and calcium in shock refractory to vasoactive drugs. So these are all reasons why your vasoactive drugs um, may not work as you expect in an unwell patient. So most of your vasoactive drugs work by increasing intracellular calcium. So if your patient's calcium is in their boots the drugs aren't going to work. So all these children should have a blood gas done and the ionized calcium checked on the blood gas and if this is less than one you should give them some calcium. Um, the other situations are where you're on multiple vasoactive drugs, your calcium is in the normal range, but you're still struggling um, in a vasoplegic child. In this situation, a calcium infusion has gotten you out of trouble on a number of times. So think about the calcium. If it's less than one, certainly top it up and you'll find your drugs work better. Uh, and remember, it, if for um, refractory shock, you might want to think about a calcium infusion. When you're on multiple vasoactive agents and you work through the other steps that I'm going to tell you about now. Um, a lot of these children have what's called um, relative adrenal insufficiency. Um, so it's their adrenals are working overtime, and they're producing lots of cortisol but just can't keep up with the demand. Um, so generally when you've got shock resistant to fluid and vasoactive drugs um, you should try and supplement them with some low dose steroids. And that's a milligram per kilogram of hydrocortisone, four times a day, up to a maximum of 50 milligrams. Um, And that's for relative adrenal insufficiency. Um, High-dose steroids, um, trying to suppress the immune response, have been shown to have a worse outcome and increased mortality and sepsis. So all you're trying to do is supplement what the adrenals would normally be doing. Uh, And the other situation where your vasoactive drugs may not work as you expect if your patient has a particularly low pH, for example due to metabolic acidosis. So if you can correct that pH um, through either bicarbonate administration or hemofiltration, um, and improve it, the vasoactive drugs may work more reliably. The other reason why your vasoactive drugs may not be working um, and it's important to consider is have I got the right diagnosis? Um, is this really sepsis or is there something else going on? So if this is a neonate, the other things you need to think about, um, and you can see the collapsed neonate uh, podcast that I mentioned, um, is this a cardiac baby? Do they have congenital heart disease? Or do they have an inherited metabolic disorder? Hemorrhage secondary to non-accidental injury is the other thing to always think about in these babies. Um, and Certainly neonates can lose enough blood into their head to make them hypotensive. So any shock neonate, the four things to think about are sepsis, congenital heart disease and a herd of metabolic disorder and non-accidental injury. So moving away from neonates, you do need an approach to any child who is hemodynamically unstable and you need to have a differential diagnosis in your head as the things that can do it. So I do cover this in the sepsis talk. And the differential diagnosis is on the, the website pediatricemergencies.com. Um, so, I like to split this up into the mechanical causes, um, surgical causes, cardiac causes, and others. Um, so, under the mechanical causes, these are things like a tension pneumothorax, a pericardial effusion causing tamponade and abdominal compartment syndrome. Um, the surgical things um, anything nasty going on the tummy can obviously cause hemodynamic instability. Um, but in particular think about intussusception, volvulus and uh, bleeding. I've already mentioned um, congenital heart disease um, but other things under the cardiac section are arrhythmia, um, myocarditis, um, myocardial infarction particularly in babies who have anomalous insertion of the coronary arteries. Um, And other things to think about, um, so think about toxins uh, diabetic ketoacidosis, pulmonary embolism, metabolic disorders, and anaphylaxis. So, I do often when I've got a child who's not behaving like they should um, fix things like the pH, uh, give them some steroids, optimize their calcium. And when you're still not winning, then you have to go through this differential diagnosis and go, Am I missing something? So, don't forget pH, steroids, and calcium in shock refractory to vasoactive drugs. And I suppose the additional thing to add here is make sure you've got the right diagnosis and consider the differential diagnosis. Okay, moving on to pearl number 26. And pearl number 26 is use adrenaline in life-threatening refractory asthma. So asthma was one of the first podcasts that I did. um, When we talked about um, the routine treatment of asthma, Um, there was a number of options you had when that wasn't working, and things you could add in for refractory asthma. And adrenaline was one of those um, and i've certainly used a low-dose adrenaline infusion to help get me out of trouble on a number of occasions and the reason adrenaline's helpful in this situation is the beta effects cause bronchodilatation um, in addition to the other um, beta agonistic effects you're getting from the example uh, salbutamol but this isn't the main reason i've mentioned to use adrenaline in life flattening uh, refractory asthma and When they looked at a lot of the asthma deaths they realised that uh, a lot of them were due to anaphylaxis that had been unrecognised and as you know the treatment for anaphylaxis is adrenaline or adrenaline or adrenaline. There's lots of other agents that are in the algorithm but the the main treatment is the adrenaline and the other agents are mainly there to prevent recurrence of the anaphylaxis. So, if you don't give these children uh, adrenaline, they're not going to get better. So, the main point of this pearl is to think does, the, does my, again, it's reconsidering the diagnosis, does my patient really have uh, an exacerbation of their asthma or could this be anaphylaxis? And either way, adrenaline is probably going to be helpful. So, think about adrenaline in life threatening refractory asthma and use it early in that setting. Okay, moving on to pearl number 27. So pearl number 27 is don't forget to send an ammonia in a collapsed neonate or any child with a reduced consciousness level of a known cause. And the reason I'm singling ammonia out, um, a metabolic problem, as we've mentioned, is always in the differential of a collapsed neonate or anybody who's got a reduced level of consciousness and you're not quite sure why. And there's a whole collection of tests that you're going to send off and many of them will come back um, some days later um, either confirming or refuting the diagnosis of a metabolic disorder. The reason I've singled out ammonia is it's time critical that you find out does your child have an elevated ammonia and it's time critical that you try and bring that ammonia level down through um, either one of a number of methods. Um, The longer the child's brain is exposed to an elevated ammonia and the higher the level of ammonia, the worse the outcome. So you need to know about it urgently. So any child who is at risk of having an elevated ammonia, you should send the test off urgently. Make an important point of looking for the result, chasing that result. and um, Because like I've said, it's a time critical diagnosis that needs urgent treatment if you're going to have a good neurological outcome. Okay, moving on to pearl number 28. So when giving drugs and fluids to critically ill children, remember you can always give more, but you can't take back what you've already given. So what do I mean by this one? Um, When I'm talking about drugs, I'm mainly talking about the the anesthetic agents, your induction agents. And as we've mentioned previously in podcasts, um, unstable children tolerate anesthesia badly. Um, you should reduce the dose that you're going to give of your induction agent significantly. Um, and even with those reduced doses, expect your child to have cardiovascular compromise on induction of anaesthesia. So for me, where I've got a relatively well child, um, the normal dose of ketamine I would give them to go off to sleep would be 2 milligrams per kilogram. Um, a sick meningococcal is going to get 05 milligrams per kilogram um, at a time. So start off with 0.5 milligrams per kilogram and obviously if they need more they'll get it 0.5 milligram per kilogram aliquots um, rather than starting with a higher dose that may cause more problems. When I come on to fluids um, if you follow standard APLS guidelines they say your fluid bonus in general is 20 mils per kilo um, as a push. Although they do mention in certain circumstances such as diabetic ketoacidosis or trauma that that bolus should be reduced to 10 mils per kilo at a time. So for me, in most circumstances, 20 mils per kilo at a time before reassessing the patient is too much. Um, You may find that after maybe only a third of that fluid bolus, your hemodynamics are back to the way you want them to be. So why would you give the other two thirds of that fluid bolus when your patient doesn't need them? So I I much prefer to work in five or 10 mils per kilo of uh, aliquots of fluid providing I can stay there and continuously assess the patient as the bolus has been given and I'm not having to do another task. I suppose for me the one circumstance where I would give 20 mils per kilo is your crushing meningococcal um, who in that circumstance um, is significantly fluid depleted. You've often got other tasks that you're concentrating on um, and it wouldn't be appropriate to delay fluid administration for frequent reassessment during those 20 mils per kilo aliquots um, so like I said it's mainly uh, fluids and um, induction agents that this applies to so when given drugs and fluids to critically ill children remember you can always give more but you can't take back what you've given okay moving on to pearl number 29 uh, Pearl number 29 is a simple one but has um, fairly significant effects if you get it wrong Um, so it's aspirate the nasogastric tube continuously during face mask ventilation Um, as we've mentioned previously on podcasts it's rare you do a classical rsi um, in children and you will bag the child gently um, during the apnea period while you're waiting for the muscle relaxant to work before you can intubate the child your best intentions are that all the air that you bag in um, will go into the lungs but a significant amount of it does go into the stomach Um, and that does two things one that increases your risk of aspiration and the second is as the abdomen distends it splints the diaphragm um, and can impair your ventilation particularly in small patients so there is a simple way of avoiding it you just have somebody continuously aspirate the nasogastric tube um, as you bag the patient um, so what you do is you aspirate the nasogastric tube at the start and that just clears any gastric juices that uh, were present in the stomach But what's important is you don't tick that job off and say it's done because as you start um, manual ventilation of the patient, air will then start filling the stomach. So it is important that you allocate one member of the team to do that job continuously um, during face mask ventilation. Okay, moving on to pearl number 30. And pearl number 30 is don't believe the label the patient comes with or accept the current treatment plan without question. Um, and this one's basically just what it says so it's always make your own mind up about the patient and try not to be influenced by what the person before you has found Um, and we've already alluded to a little bit about this in the collapse neonate or your hypotensive patient who's refractory to treatment have i got the right diagnosis or for example your asthmatic patient is this really anaphylaxis so Always query, um, have I got the right diagnosis and make your own mind up about it. And this is particularly important at this time of year in bronchiolitis season because every neonate that has wheeze or respiratory difficulties is labelled as bronchiolitis. And heightened among all those babies with bronchiolitis, there'll be the odd baby who has a congenital heart problem, maybe a congenital lung problem, a child with a metabolic problem causing them to breathe fast or a baby with sepsis so it's important you always consider the differential diagnosis and don't just accept the label the child has come with the same thing happens with a treatment plan um, just because somebody else has made a treatment plan doesn't mean you have to follow it blindly if to you it doesn't make sense so always query things always make your own mind up about things Okay so that's another 10 uh, paediatric critical care pearls for you. Um, There's probably going to be at least uh, one more part in this series which I'll try and get out in the next few weeks. Um, If you've been enjoying the podcast so far um, I would encourage you to leave me a review on iTunes and if you've got any questions or comments about this episode or any of the other episodes please leave them in the comment section and I'll get back to you. Thanks for listening.